0: Hello, this is Mary Cole and the Good Story Podcast, helping writers craft a good story. With me, you will hear from thought leaders related to writing, and sometimes not, about topics important to writers of all categories and ability levels. Here is to telling a good story. Hello, hello. This is Mary Cole with Good Story Podcast. For this very special third episode, I would love to welcome Peter H. Reynolds, author, illustrator, uh, and dot connector extraordinaire. Uh, Peter, it's so wonderful to have you on. Could you please introduce yourself for the audience?
1: Sure. Well, an absolute honor to be with you. Um, I am Peter uh, Reynolds, uh, although when I go to schools, kids always call me Peter H. Reynolds. Um, and that is Peter Hamilton Reynolds.
0: Oh.
1: I, yeah. Uh, I was uh, born in Canada with my twin brother, Paul. And we came to the United States when we were three. Um, and I always say that we have a journey family because my father was born in Argentina. Mom was born in London, Grandparents were born in New Zealand, another in Scotland. So oh, wow. We've a lot. And uh, so we're, we're, we are a journey family, and I know a lot of people out there can relate to that. Um, and I think that's probably one of the things that helped uh, me become a storyteller because our family is full of stories. And I have been sharing those stories through my books like The Dot and Ish and The North Star and collaborations with Megan McDonald. I illustrate the Judy Moody series. Mm-hmm. And I also illustrate the, the I Am series uh, by the, the lovely human being, uh, Susan Verde. Uh, I am human. I am yoga. I am peace. I am love. And we're just wrapping up our next one called I Am One. And that will be out next year. And I also am collaborating with my twin brother, Paul. We did, we've done four books together the Sydney and Simon series and, and, uh, a book called going places. And then of course I collaborate with myself. <laughs> so I, I get <laughs> to illustrate my own stories and I've done a, a bunch recently for Scholastic, uh, happy dreamer, uh, the word collector, say something. And there's a new one that's coming out called be you a handbook for amazing human beings. And, um, so, and I also have an animation company uh, called fable vision in Boston, uh, 35 full-time artists writers programmers animators creating really cool meaningful media that we hope will change the world and uh to top it off i also have my very own bookstore called the blue bunny in my hometown um there's more but (laughs) i guess
0: (laughs) i was gonna say do you do you fit eating and sleeping into the schedule at all
1: um, uh, I'm going to investigate those concepts,
0: <laughs> that work life balance thing, right? The mythical <laughs> idea that I think some of us, uh, we put a little pin in it for, to investigate later, just not now. Cause we're too busy.
1: Well, being born a twin, you know, I think that might have something to do with it. You know, that, um, you know, if you have a lot to do, uh, be born a twin, um, cause you can get twice as much stuff done.
0: Oh my gosh. Uh, I'm I, I will put that on my to-do list.
1: Yes, Paul and I always <laughs> say, if you don't have a twin, find a twin. Um, <laughs> and he is uh, he he is an amazing human being who has been my cheerleader on the journey. And I finally, I told him, I'm like Paul, I appreciate all of your cheerleading, but you know, you're an amazing writer, thinker, teacher, and father, and I, you have a lot of wisdom to share with the world. You should really. Uh, start doing your books. So fortunately he started and he's, he's now on a roll and uh, I've been able to collaborate with him on his books. um, And he's got lots more to come. That is
0: wonderful. So one of my questions was going to be, uh, you know, you are a writer, you are an illustrator, you write yourself, uh, your own projects, as you said, but you also illustrate. So why don't we, just dive in that was gonna be my first question anyway. how is the process different and how do you approach projects when they're sort of your own uh you've you've come up with the idea the whole concept I would imagine and you're gonna be the one taking words and uh, images across the finish line and how does that differ from when you're coming into somebody else's idea and words and you're acting as collaborator
1: uh yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think in both cases, you know, if I'm writing my own story, I make a movie in my head. That's kind of how I start. I come up with the idea and then suddenly I just imagine that idea, uh, you know, cast with characters and setting and it becomes a little movie in my head and I write it down and and I jot down the images that I have in my head. But I think the same thing happens, you know, when I read somebody else's work, I immediately turn it into a movie. Um and I could see it in my head as I'm reading. I'm turning your words into, into into characters. And it's a equally fun process for me. Um in some ways it maybe it's easier to illustrate other people's stories because, you know, that's the way Megan McDonald wanted <laughs> she described the scene that way and we're gonna stick with it. Whereas if I'm writing and illustrating, I could always change my mind. Mm as the writer and it can, you know, you can, you can drive yourself a bit crazy, you know, with all the possibilities. <laughs> so, you know, eventually you have to just say, okay, all right, let's settle down and choose. <laughs> We're going to choose a character. We're going to choose the story. Um, but I love both. I really do. I love collaborating. In fact, it's probably, um, um, it's, you know, I have less of my books out there yep. than me. I would like, because I, I actually have a a journal called books, not yet in print. And it's my imaginary catalog with all of my future book ideas. Mm -hmm. And I have, I have, and I draw the covers to the book. So it looks like a, like a little scholastic catalog. Uh, and the books don't exist. Well, some of them do now because as I, I thumb through, I, I see the ones that I've done, but I have about 400, uh, book covers that I've drawn and I know each one of them. I know the story, um, inside each one of them. So, um, I'm, I've, I've done the math and I'm not quite sure I can, <laughs> I don't think I can get them all done. <laughs> uh, so that's why, you know, I mean, collab- well, I, I love making lovely stories and bringing good stories uh, to the world. So if I can help a friend, um, and you know, my, my collaborators are my friends. I only work with people I like, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and whose hearts are, and minds are in sync with mine, um, I got the, I had the honor to work with Amy Kress Rosenthal,
0: yeah.
1: who, who was truly one of the most extraordinary people on the planet. And, um, you know, it was such a joy working with her. It, it actually felt very twinish, ish uh, and I, I also described Susan Verde as my cosmic twin sister, uh, <laughs> because we're so, so much alike when I read her words. I'm, I think I'm like, wow, I, uh, this sounds like. A book that I would have written. um, And it it feels very natural. So illustrating her stuff is very easy for me. uh, Because it sounds, yeah, it's, it's vocabulary that's really familiar to me.
0: I think that is uh, a very wonderful point. And we'll come back to sort of the heart of what you do, the heart at the heart of what you do, so to speak with uh, some of your uh, charitable work, uh, TLC, we will get to that. But I think it's, it's very interesting that you, you talk about this concept of twins and collaborations and sort of being like minded, uh, like spirited with the people that you work with. I mean, at your at your sort of level in your career you can probably have your pick of anybody are you looking for new collaborators is there you know sort of is there room to add to the the twin ship at this point or do you have sort of do you have your your base team of people that you will want to be working with
1: i'm open to all possibilities i i get excited about uh the whole concept of duets uh, and, you know, being surprised by combining people that maybe you wouldn't have expected to uh, to work with. You know, it's like there's that great uh, holiday song video, uh, Bing Crosby and David Bowie mm-hmm. singing uh, the Little Drummer Boy, which is it just it's so lovely to see those two. They were so different. And yet they made something really beautiful together. So, um, I, you know, I, I welcome uh, being surprised uh, you know, working with uh, well anybody that's got uh, a story that is going to help uh, heal the world, make it a better place, get people to be more thoughtful, um, and uh, so yeah, so I'm I'm definitely I'm open to collaborating.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the craft the illustration craft as as you approach it you have uh in your case these 400 books in your journal and you sort of you have the ideas maybe there are changes to the ideas that you can make as 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 you work and then you have you know somebody else's manuscript that you come to what usually in these movies that appear in your head what do you usually see first? Is it sort of all over the place or is your entry point into a story, the character, the a certain look or movement of the character? Is it the world of the story, for example, something, some detail uh, of the world that, that draws you in? What? How does the movie usually open when you sit down with a new project?
1: Well, it depends if somebody's sharing the, the idea or if I'm reading a manuscript. If I read the manuscript, I... I literally I literally take each word and I turn it into an image, um, and I kind of let that person be the director of my film. Um, but I often, if someone's describing an idea to me, uh, it's the character that pops out, and I s- kind of sketch it in my head, and I see my little my little character, you know, hauling the gigantic log down down the road, <laughs> and um, it, you know that becomes the touchstone image for me, and then I I'll. Uh, I'll start sketching what I'm seeing and then that that helps me get to know the character and then then the world kind of unfolds from from there.
0: And what about your use of color? One of the books that we, uh, read in my house a lot, I have a three and a half year old son and, you know, a 10 month old son, but the three and a half year old is really into Gaiku, uh, oh. which is a project I love. And there, your use of color is very judicious to reflect each season. How, how do you interact with color? How do you create, uh, some of these other kind of elements of the world, not just the the line work,
1: yeah. Well, less is more is my uh, guide. I think that you know our imaginations are are pretty amazing, and that you don't need to uh, deliver every bit of information. You know, his pants are red, and his you know his shoes <laughs> are green. And in some ways, it's almost a distraction, unless the story was about the green shoes. Right. You know, right. if it's a big deal that it's the green shoes and he's the only kid in class with green shoes. Um, and in, then, in fact, I would even reduce the color like in Guy Koo, which is a lovely collection of uh, poems for guys. Uh, and although gals can read them, too, uh, by Bob Roshka, Uh I used a single palette for each season. So I had browns um, and uh, yellows and blues and greens I think mm-hmm. but you know in the dot for instance I use a sepia tone for pretty much everything except for when she's uh, creating her dots or if her her emotion comes out as a dot so when she first jabs the paper it, uh, she gave the paper a good strong jab There, <laughs> there's this big red dot behind her so um, I, I tend to use color for um, um, just, yeah, very judiciously when, when it seems that it's going to help. Um, otherwise, in fact, I would love to do a, a I'd love to do a book without any color, just line, line, Ooh. um, because my sketch books, which I have hundreds of are filled with line drawings with my little trusty Sharpie, my very simple black extra fine Sharpie. And I, I just put pen to paper and images flow out and I have probably thousands of these little drawings and I, you know, I don't think they need color. So, I mean, Shel Silverstein is famous for, uh, right, just, just line on paper, no, no color whatsoever. But of course in, in the kid lit world, as we know, um, you know, there are publishers and publishers want to sell books and they there's kind of a, a safe lane in children's books Yep, they it that's why a lot of books you know they tend to look a lot like each other because they know the formula that works nice bright splashy colors uh fill the page uh just to um so they t- they tend tend to uh blend one into another. That's why it's exciting when you see a book that's so, you know, so different and you're like, wow, somebody was brave. And then I like to look at like, who is the publisher that was brave enough (laughs) Mm -hmm. to, to publish that book?
0: I mean, this, this is an oldie, but The Arrival, Chantan comes to mind immediately. It was wordless. It had a very specific palette. You know, it's basically a graphic novel uh, that was published in, in picture book format. And, uh, and that was such a treat to see it in this market.
1: Having a bookshop, I've got, you know, it's fun <laughs> to, um, uh, to have all those books at my fingertips. And, uh, one that stands out to me is the gold leaf. Do you know the gold leaf? Mm, good. Right? Yeah. Uh, Kirsten Hall. Um, and Matthew Forsyth is the illustrator. It's such a gorgeous book and it, it, it does not look like a, um, well, to me it looks like a, a, a fabulous picture book, but yeah. on first glance, it's a very somber cover. It, yeah. it's, it's a sepia very dark sepia background. Um, and I just know a traditional publisher, um, probably would, <laughs> would have said, uh, love it, but could we, could we make it a little more cheery?
0: What, so this is, this is a U-turn or a left turn rather. Uh, but as a former literary agent, I was very much part of the traditional publishing uh, industry and, and there, you're right. Risks are sort of not encouraged because agents want to represent what they know will sell. Publishers want to publish what they know will sell. And so writers who do have sort of an out there idea or maybe something risky, maybe something new, especially in a market, you're right, as segmented and, uh, you know in some cases uh, familiar and maybe even a little cookie cutter as as children's books uh, what would you what advice would you give to a writer who maybe has such an out there project and and kind of uh, getting those champions seems like an insurmountable thing
1: well if you've got an out there idea uh, or if you're the only person that seems to believe in the idea or get the idea uh self publish you know mm-hmm. it's, it's come a long way in in uh, 30 years uh the back of the day it was called you know they would call it vanity press yep and um it was also very very expensive uh to self publish and today i mean you you can you know if you set your mind to it and start right now you know this time tomorrow you could upload your files and press go and get a copy delivered to you probably the next day. So it's, it's kind of extraordinary. Uh, the tools that we have access to right now. And, uh, you know, if you do have a, uh, a cool idea and you want to share it with the world and that world might be you, maybe your mother, I would say <laughs> print three copies, one for yourself, one for your mother or someone who loves you and will say nice things. <laughs> <laughs> And encourage you. And then one for complete stranger. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you're published. And then I encourage people to widen that circle and get a couple of copies and give them to teachers. You will learn so, so much from handing it to a teacher because uh, if it works, you'll hear about it. If it doesn't work, eventually, maybe five weeks later, they'll say, oh, thank you for dropping that book off. (laughs) Uh, if it works, they're going to send you an email and say, oh, my gosh, what an amazing conversation. My kids, you know, they all started making crowns and um, uh, the uh, our classroom became a kingdom and they named it and, and it. and you'll be surprised to see, you know, like when it works, it really works. And uh, Paul and I often like to say that um, the, the teachers know how to activate a book. Mm hmm. You, a kid can read a book, but it, a teacher really knows how to activate it. And when you activate a book, you do that deep dive into it, and you you not just read it, you reread it. You start figuring out the meaning. Uh, you start having conversations, and then you explore the ideas in you know physical ways by you know, making things, by making songs, uh, by creating costumes, and that one. You know, five minute story experience can actually turn into a week long, month long, a year long experience and will be transformational for the kids that experience it.
0: So, I'm really going to put the screws to you here um, and ask the question that I think is on every writer's mind whether they're writing a picture book, illustrating a picture book, writing something for, uh, non children's readers, even because I think that this this nugget of an idea is is relevant everywhere. But how do you how do you achieve that that kind of traction with a book? What does a book need to have to take it from a mm, "thank you for dropping this off" sort of polite reaction to the kind of reaction that runs for not just a year but years? Because I think a lot of the books that you work on have this quality, this X factor, um, and and I'm really curious to to hear if you have an answer for this question. Because a lot of writers are wondering this exact thing.
1: I think uh, choosing a universal theme that defies an age group. Um, you know, if it's loneliness, right? And you could be lonely. Uh, a lonely first grader, you could be a lonely 90-year-old. Mm-hmm. Those are things that all of us can understand. Um, you know, uh, struggling with first day of school is really only a very limited audience for that, and and it might serve those kids really, really well, but if you're 25 years old, you're probably not going to be able to discern the metaphor <laughs> for, you know, <laughs> life from, from reading a story about a kid struggling with the first day of kindergarten. Um and uh I think also when we're writing stories that if you imagine yourself with a circle of let's say kindergarten or first graders and you're telling a story for them, it will be very, very different than if you were sitting at a table at you know, during the holidays and you've got the kindergarten kid at the table and you also have grandma and you've got your you know, 60 year old uncle if you've got everybody around you and you're telling a story for everybody it's going to sound a lot different than if you just had that circle of kids so um, I, I try to encourage people to write stories for everybody or whatever age they are uh, that they should be able to find the story interesting and that they're going to learn something from it and be inspired by it, by your, uh, by your story, by your wisdom. And that's another thing I, I tell people, if you're looking for a story idea, um, look for the wisdom that you've collected along the way. The good news is, uh, that we get a whole year's worth of wisdom. And when we turn one year older, Sometimes we panic. It's like, oh no! <laughs> it's, I'm a year older. So you always remind people, yeah, but you, you got a, a year's worth of wisdom, and you probably a lot of that wisdom is probably hard fought for. Um, you know, the journey is tough, and we make our mistakes, and hopefully we learn from them. If you have learned from them, you know, you can actually that becomes the basis of some really good storytelling, because every good story actually has a problem. It's got a challenge. And if you haven't lived a big life, if you haven't made your mistakes, um, your stories aren't going to be that relatable because, uh, you know, all of us, no matter what age, if you're you know, that first grader or you're, uh, you're just retired. Um, you know, we all need help. And, mm-hmm. uh, if you've learned something you can share with somebody else, so we, you know, at least they could see it from, your your perspective and they may say, wow, you know, that's a really good way to look at it. Um, and I know with my twin brother, we're, we're identical twins, but we're, we look at the world differently and Paul definitely teaches me. I remember we were in, we were in the car together. We were driving to Boston and it was raining and we get onto the highway and we see all the red lights and, And I sort of groaned and I said, Oh my God, you know, this is going to take forever (laughs) to get to Boston. And Paul just very quietly looked at me with a smile and he said, more time to spend together. And I thought, wow, you know, (laughs) I was looking at this thing as we're stuck in traffic. Yeah, He looked that, wow, we get to spend more time together. And so it was his perspective of the same situation and it, and that stuck with me too. And that's why you know, stories are awesome because they—they're they, really sticky. You know, the, the good ones are really sticky, and the—the—the the, the, the idea, the enlightenment in that story uh, can stay with you for your whole life.
0: So I'm hearing a bunch of things that I love here. I think the takeaway, though, is Peter H. Reynolds advises you to go out and make mistakes. Am I? Right?
1: <laughs> Am I right? Do you know what? That's absolutely. <laughs> that's absolutely right. I, I we're all, uh, we're all panicked to get it right. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, life is messy. Creativity is messy. Uh, and you can't stress yourself out to try to get it right. And including living your life. Right. Cause we're, you know, um, you know, we have to be brave. You have to be fearless. You have to sort of sometimes dive into the deep end of the pool Mm -hmm. and then when you're actually creating stuff creating your stories i think we and your artwork uh some of us are really you know we're perfectionists because you know that's at least the paradigm in public education in the united states is that there's really only one choice right it's straight a's right six courses um the goal is you've got to be an expert in everything and you you memorize stuff and you spit it back and um It's uh, a unfortunate paradigm because, you know, we're not great at everything. And thank goodness we're not. And in fact, I think it's divine plan that, uh, you know, you know, something, I know something different. Um, You know, my neighbor knows, you know, is better at engineering. My, you know, the woman across the street is great at math. We all need each other. And if we were great at everything, I think the planet would fall apart. So I think we need to embrace, um, our mistakes, um, be more, um, fearless and, uh, and then also, you know, hone in on what, what it is that you're really, really, really good at. Um, and you know, keep, keep playing, keep experimenting, even the stuff that you're really, really good at. We all need to be challenged to do, uh, to maybe be even more uncareful, you know, more fearless, more playful, um, and keep learning, you know, the, the learning process never stops. I'm still learning. I keep thinking like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm almost there, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I've got, um, um, you know, I'll, I'll actually be starting my seventh decade on the planet wow. in, in about 300 and about 400 days, (laughs) which kind of mind blowing to me.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: And, uh, and I still feel like I'm just getting started.
0: Wow. So I'm going to pivot to something else that you said, because there's been so much, I think, good perspective. And now Paul move aside, you're the one giving some really good perspective here. Um, so one of the things that I think Is key to making a book sticky, like you said. Is this universal theme, universal experience on the page? It can come from multiple characters in picture book, which is why I think getting some of that intergenerational sort of family story on the page is really effective, and that's why so many adult novels, pardon me, literary fiction projects. The intergenerational story is just so sticky to readers because it does uh, open up doors for multiple layers of experience, different perspectives, as you said. But one of the traps a lot of writers fall into in the picture book space is having grandma come in with her depth of experience and say, well, see, Johnny, that's why we share and sharing is great. And a lot of books sort of almost disenfranchise the kid audience by putting the answer right there on the page. So if a writer is really struggling, they have a universal theme, oh golly, they just want to shove it in there. Um, how do we do this in a way that sparks the reader's creativity, their innate intelligence? Because I do think picture book Audiences and readers are very, very capable of complex thought, maybe not complex vocabulary or sentence structure, which is another sort of uh, obstacle a lot of writers uh, fall into when they when they write for this audience. But how do we honor that picture book audience without hitting them over the head with that great universal theme that that writers have come up with? How do we get that medicine in there, uh, without the kids tasting it through the syrup of the story? If you will.
1: That is one of the big problems when people are just beginning. Uh, and actually I know some people who are doing it for a long time and they, they, I think they don't trust the power of their story to create conversations after the book. You know, when you close that book, uh, your brain immediately starts uh, figuring it out and then you can start having conversations. And I think if you trust that process, that if it's a powerful idea, the conversation is going to really just get started after you close the book Mm -hmm. and trust that there will actually probably be a, a wise other hanging around or it could be your twin. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you can just book with and picture books, especially are designed for two people. You know, when I look at a picture book and it opens up, there are two sides. I always thought, like, that's kind of nifty because when you're reading to a child, you know, they get half and you get half. And mm. of course, the best kind of storytelling is interactive storytelling where you're mm-hmm. not just narrating the story, that you're Pausing, looking at the pictures, asking your young co-pilot <laughs> what they're seeing and um, guessing what might happen. Uh, and then when you close that book, you can you can have that conversation about, um, you know, how brave the, the, the girl was or, you know. Um, so I think maybe people panic if, as they're writing their story and think, oh, you know, I, I just want to make sure that they understand right. sharing is caring. So <laughs> and as you say, right, right. Grandma comes in and it's like sharing is caring boys and girls. And, you know, there it's, uh, uh, it, it's not my cup of tea. I mean, some people don't notice it. I, I do. It makes my skin crawl a little bit because I, I think that, um, well, again, less is more. And that's something I like to encourage people to do is. Uh, take your lovely, precious story that you've crafted and see if you can remove sentences. Yeah. And, and does it still work? And, you know, I mean, the ultimate test is could you tell it without any words? Mm. Uh, and, you know, what would people be able to get it if they just sort of peeked into your world and you saw the, you know, the bear on the unicycle and <laughs> <laughs> to sort of figure out. Um, what's going on without words. But I actually, I'm a big fan of words. I think, you know, people who are visually impaired, they need those words. So, um, you know, I'm a big believer that, you know, a pictures worth a thousand words, but if you can't see those pictures, uh, you're not going to get the essence of what that, what the story is, uh, about without words. So, you know, don't forget how powerful those those words are, even if you're trying to do a very sparse story. Um, make sure that you've got enough of that story being told through words. And then, you know, if the pictures supply those extra layers, that's, that's awesome. So...
0: I think that's something else that a lot of people who come from the writing side of things tend to struggle with, uh, which is allowing room for illustration. Uh, a lot of the manuscripts I see there, you know, over a thousand words, uh, that the character visuals are described in great detail. There are a ton of illustrator notes. Uh, we get a lot of action described in detail setting. What might your recommendation be as, you know, as an, a. uh, uh very, very, uh, highly trained and experienced illustrator. How do you tell a writer, Hey, trust that your story is coming across and leave some room for the illustrations. What sorts of things do you not need? For example, in a manuscript when, when it arrives on your doorstep?
1: Well, I think I'm probably not alone in having a really busy schedule and I'm, uh, you know, if someone shows me something, uh, especially a story, I, I would love to experience the story as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And, uh, when I get things that are overloaded with notes about, you know, the, you know, basically the stage directions, um, it's, it gets in the way of me experiencing the story and I can make that little movie in my head, even with, you know, there might be 12 sentences and I can turn those 12 sentences into a book, into a movie in my head. So I don't need all the extra stuff. Once we get get busy in creating the book, if you have some uh, if you have helpful notes on you know, um, what the town square looks like and if it's really important to you if there's elements that are really important to you. But I think it's also uh, in some ways it's uh, you're taking some of the the magic away from the illustrator mm-hmm. by giving all of those directions. And I think you need to, I think you absolutely write all those notes down because if in your, if in your head you see this movie and it's, it looks a particular way and it's set in this, you know, it, it matters that it's set in Turkey, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, write that down for yourself, but you know, save that for later. Um, and be surprised because the illustrator is going to take your words and it might take it in a completely different direction and that might completely delight you. Um, if it doesn't, then you can say, do you know what? I was actually not, you know, I was picturing it being less sci-fi or, um, mm-hmm. you know, more timeless. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it's, again, I suppose go back to less is more. And if I can get, the essence of the, the story in a short period of time, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, well, that works for me. I know with Susan, Susan Verde showed me a folder when I very, I met her first time I met her, she had a folder and she had some poems and I read one of these poems. And it, the first one was called the museum. And it took me about, you know, I do know a minute to read and I fell in love with it. I love the concept of this little girl romping through a museum and every piece of art makes her feel a different emotion. And that idea I totally resonates with me. And I'm like, yes, I want the world to uh, experience museums in a, in a much more dynamic, emotional way. So she had me, she had me with very few words and there were no notes. It was just uh, a, It all fit on one eight and a half by eleven sheet of paper. Mm -hmm. And I I told her, I said, This is a book. And if anyone else illustrates it, I'll be jealous. I introduced (laughs) her to Holly McGee at Pitman Properties. She got a three book deal, which led to the I Am series and many, many other lovely books.
0: And talk about an explosion of color for for the museum
1: project. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was that was a delight to do. Of course I had to do my interpretations of Van Gogh and Monet and it was, that was a really fun, fun book project.
0: So piggybacking off of that, um, how do you approach a project in your process as a creator? Let's say the, the idea for the story already exists, whether it's from your your book of to, your to do list sketchbook or somebody else's project that comes from you. Give us give us a snapshot of uh, Peter H. Reynolds in a studio. Uh, you're, you've got your sharpie in hand. What what happens?
1: Well, if it's if it's my book, I tend not to go to my studio. I usually find a nice noisy place. And uh, there are other people who, you know, they need their barn in Vermont and (laughs) far, far away from distractions. I actually kind of welcome them. I feed off of energy around me. So, you know, I'll find a cafe or a restaurant and I just find a little spot and I nestle in and I put my Sharpie to the page and I uh, will either start with a illustration, or I'll start with, well, I might know what the concept's about. Then I just start writing and try to get into that flow space and let the story sort of tumble out. And then I will begin, uh, you know, that film process begins. I'm really, in a way, it's like note-taking watching a film. If you're watching a movie and you were actually taking notes yeah. uh, describing the film, so, you could tell someone else later, this happened and that happened. Um, and it's describing this film rather than writing a story. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, I, I think that when we're writing, you know, it's like, oh, I have to craft this beautiful sentence. And to me, it's more important to tell, describe the film rather than write an eloquent story. You can always go and Go back and say, "Well, is there a more eloquent way to say that the family gathered at the dinner table?" Mm-hmm. Um, but the point you're trying to create that image, like, okay, this is chaotic house, and you finally get everyone to the dinner table. That, like, that's the important part. There, then you can go always go back and uh, find a more eloquent way to say that. Um, so, when I'm illustrating somebody else's story, that I tend to actually when I think about it, I actually probably end up in my studio and, uh, you know, cause I have to kind of get into your head okay. and that's different than getting into my head. <laughs> yeah. So I think I need, it probably needs to be more quiet when I'm, when I'm, uh, diving into your words and uh, creating the, uh, the film cause I have to get, uh, understand your film and, in that case, I probably end up, I I do visual note-taking, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll take your story and then convert it into the film, and then I basically create a storyboard of the film. Oh, and interesting. The, so it's like right.
0: reverse funnels. For your ideas, it becomes words, and for their ideas, words become the storyboard.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's actually, it's fun when you look, when you when I'm finished and I look at this very very sloppy, messy, you know, to to the rest of the world, probably looks sloppy, messy. (laughs) You know, it's my, the language I understand. So I don't have to draw the whole horse. I just draw well, horse ish. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I can essentially illustrate, you know, a 40 page book in two hours, um, in that language, in that very free flowy, you know, sketchy, but it, essentially when I look at those little frames and I don't have that much space because it's storyboard yeah that's really helpful because it constrains me to say okay I all right there's a horse and there's a little girl on the back of the horse and she's standing you know on uh, upside down you know <laughs> uh, and holding a crown or something and the, that's a lot of information to get into a very small you know, two inch by three inch space. And when I go to create the, the bigger illustration, the final illustration, I actually go back to the little illustration and I say, you know, Hey, I was able to tell that whole, that whole story with really just, you know, maybe 12 lines. So do I really need anything more? You know, maybe a wisp of something in the background, you know, okay, she's outside. So there should be a tree and maybe there's a, <laughs> a a bird flying. It's like, okay, bird flying must be outside. <laughs> yeah but I think that's really helpful to uh, again what what's the least amount of uh, of line and and then also how how few words do you really need to, to to deliver the story the idea
0: I would love to direct a lot of writers to this advice, whether it is long form prose for older audiences uh, picture book writers especially because I think the the idea of going back to basics of constraining yourself so that you can focus Mm -hmm. on the bare essentials of the story. That is something I admire about your, your style to begin with. It is, it is, there's a lot of white space on the page. Uh, it's almost like a spot illustration, uh, which, which does bring me to something else. I, I, I would love to end the conversation on some of your other endeavors. Um, But one of the other things I'm still kind of dying to know is, does it differ between a picture book project and, like you said, you also do these cover spot illustrations, you kind of... um you have even less, I think to work with when you're just rendering a character for a chapter heading for a chapter book, let's say. how does that work differ from from the picture book work? that That's the thing I, I don't know if it would make a difference, but I, I mean there you're dealing with such an iconic character. I think did you feel pressure to sort of be be the voice or the you know the visual voice of such a beloved character?
1: Yeah. Well, when I started illustrating Judy Moody, I had no idea that there would even be a sequel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't be a book two or a book three, and four and five and six. And
0: seven.
1: <laughs> I, I can, of course, Stink is the spinoff series, and uh, there, there's the movie. No idea. When Mary Lee Donovan at Kenilwood Press contacted me, she said, Peter, we read The North Star, and we love your sensibilities we'd like you to take a look at this manuscript. And I, I looked at the manuscript. There's like, I don't know, 30 type pages. And yeah. uh, and it was titled, Judy Moody Was in a Mood, Not a Good Mood, A Bad Mood, by Megan McDonald. And so I read it over the weekend. And as I was reading, I was making my movie, and I jotted down little illustrations on three-by-five cards. And I ended up with, I don't know, about 45, 50 Wow. illustrations. Wow. And I brought them into Cannawik the next week. And I we said, I love the story. I think this is, uh, this character is, a delightful, feisty girl. Uh, and she's very creative. And, um, and so they saw this big stack of drawings and they said, Oh wow. You know, we weren't to <laughs> we were <gonna laughs> the cover and some chapter head headings. And they said, but you know, they look through them all and they're like, Oh, we like them all can we use all of them? And so I said, sure. So <laughs> those, those were the rough ones. So obviously it took longer to do, to do the final rendering of each one. Um, and I set myself up after that, uh, with a lot of work because Judy Moody instinct are very heavily illustrated mm, mm-hmm. um, due to that. Me just sort of letting <laughs> it pour out. <laughs> and, you know, then when you do the first one, then the second one has to right. feel like the first one. Um, and then about, I guess it was the third book that the series really took off. And then by the fourth and fifth, I kind of knew I was, um, I had been very you know, privileged to be invited into this iconic um, characters world. And I, uh, uh, I feel like a caretaker for for this, for that world. Yeah. And I, um, yeah, I'm really proud of how that, where that series has, has gone. Um, and for me, I zigzag between doing my picture books and then doing Judy Moody, which is some people are a bit surprised Are like, or oh, Judy Moody. Oh, I didn't realize you did Judy Moody. Um, you know, I think as writers and illustrators, we have a little dial and you can kind of dial to different frequencies mm-hmm. and there's a Judy Moody frequency, which is a little, a little zanier and a little wackier, um, and, uh, uh and then Stink is even wackier, <laughs> a little more crazy. And in each one of the Stink books, Stink, he's an artist, so he has comics. So I get to be Stink drawing. And so his drawings are like really crazy and fun. And then I can dial it to, you know, up to, you know, the dot and then the water princess, which is you know, based on a true story of a little girl, um, in a village in Africa looking for water. And that's, that's a, you know, a much more realistic frequency. Yeah. And, but I, you know, I have, I sort of had control of that, that dial.
0: Do you need time to reset? I mean, you you mentioned going to a cafe for one type of project when it's when it's your own. Do you need a, sort of an artistic palette cleanser, or are you able to sort of jump around?
1: Um, I build in little retreats throughout my year, and mm-hmm. I actually I will find a you know, I call it the undisclosed location. <laughs> I, I kind of spin a wheel and I end up someplace on the planet, and I and it might be you know five streets over, it might be in another country. But I uh, do, I unplug myself and I just start sketching for, for myself. And I think that's a really, I think it's a good piece of advice for all of us is spend more time being truly you. Uh, and I know that we writers and illustrators, we, you know, we have to pay the rent, so You want to make your publisher happy, your agent happy, your editors happy, your audience happy, but you have to make sure you carve out time to make yourself happy. You know, write the story that, that you want to write, that you want to read, um, and kind of forget about your audience, um, in, in the nicest possible way. Um, you know, and, and sketch something you want to sketch and, don't have a plan. You know, that's, what's lovely about a sketchbook is, you know, you don't have a plan. You don't have to make the characters, you know, the, the, the shirt match the previous page. I mean, illustrating is really hard work, um, you know, because there's consistency and proportion and getting things just right. And if there's a windmill in the background, it probably resembles <laughs> a real, you know, <laughs> but you know, if you're just sketching for yourself, And letting the lines pour out or writing for yourself, um, you know, to me, that's the holy grail is to be able to do something that makes you happy. And there's a lot of incoming, you know, with social media and and, your friends and writers groups and editors. And it's just a lot of incoming noise. And I think it's pretty rare to actually actually hear yourself think. And so, you know, I guess that's my wish for everybody. Is to, you know, find that space for yourself. Find that space for yourself and hear yourself think, and create something that you love.
0: So you have mastered this work-life balance, you stinker. You just didn't tell
1: me. Well, I've had a few. <laughs> I've had a few years to try, try different methods. But um, yeah, I have a lot going on. And, but I do, I do try to carve out time for myself. And I make a promise at night to read something, but also open up my journal and and make some kind of mark. And sometimes it's a poem. Sometimes it's a drawing. Sometimes a whole story spills out. You know, it might be midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning. Um, Oof. Yeah. It's um, always fun to wake up in the morning and you know, I open up my journal and I think, you know, did I write something last night? Did I draw something? And I'll be surprised. I'll look at the page and think, I do not remember <laughs> yeah. doing this because I was drifting into sleep. Yeah. And uh, I actually love that little moment in time when you're, you're, you've got one foot in the real world and the other foot in the dream world. And to actually be able to record something from the dream world, put it on paper before you drift completely into the dream world, um it's pretty fantastic to to
0: through. use that moment instead of you know, scrolling on Instagram or whatever, whatever a lot of us do when we're trying to trying to get to sleep., um, so uh, to end, you one of the things that keeps you busy is uh, the work that you do with uh, the Reynolds Center, um, which you've uh, called the Reynolds Center TLC uh, Center for Teaching, Learning and creativity. You have initiatives like international dot day. Can you speak to sort of, you've mentioned it early on this, this mission for inspiring others. You like to work with like-minded, uh, creators. What are you doing with these initiatives?
1: The rental center is our way to focus on, well, two things. One is, uh, TLC and TLC stands for teaching, learning, and creativity, but it's also uh, part of our philosophy that we need to make sure that we take care of teachers, especially mm-hmm. in public education. We don't fund schools the way we should. Uh, we don't support them, uh, and as as we should, as much as we should. Some some areas are luckier than others, and that's one of the focuses for us: is how how do we make sure that these Creative experiences that some kids are lucky enough to have are experienced by every child, no matter where they are, no matter what neighborhood they're in. And so our work is trying to um, find creative ways to get uh, creative tools into the hands of every child. Um, And also our mission is to make sure that, uh, especially in public education, that there are wonderful places for kids to be, but also for teachers to be. And we have to be much, much more creative and innovative and trusting. I trust the teachers got into this profession because it's And uh, we are trying to encourage schools to really think about their creative climate. You know, what what's the creative climate like in, in your school and how can you make it better? And uh, where International Dot Day has been a really amazing experience, uh, started with the teacher in Iowa, Terry Shea, uh, who, uh, whose kids asked if September 15th, 2003 was the birthday of the book. Was that was, was the book born on that day? So they asked me and I said, yeah, that's yeah, sure. It, that is, it <laughs> yeah. So they had a birthday party for the book, which turned into a, a well, it kind of went viral with his friends, teacher friends, and a couple of hundred teachers the next year, and then a couple of thousand the next year, and then tens of thousands the following year. And I, I, think, I, mean, I think we're up in the 16 million oh. uh, marks made last year. We had 184 countries participating. It's a big birthday party. That is one big birthday party. <laughs> and it's a day to celebrate creativity. And for older kids, you can dive in deeper and say, Well, what does it mean to make your mark? What does it mean to have impact? What are you going to do uh, to make this world a better place? How can you use your talents and energy to make this world a better place? And it's uh, become a day-long celebration in some places. It's week-long, and then sometimes it becomes a a whole year. And that makes us very happy at the Rental Center because we have managed to get – to get schools to at least pause for one day to say creativity matters. It's really, really important to teach kids how to create bravely, and that can change the creative culture in a classroom, and a school, and a community. So, um, dot date shall continue to roll forward, September 15th ish, and people <laughs> can find out more information on uh, at the dot club. Dot org is information on how to enroll for next year and uh, some sample activities. But the lovely thing about dot day is there really are no rules. It's however you want to celebrate creativity. Um, if it's simply making a dot and signing it, you're in. Uh, but there is much more elaborate uh, celebrations that you can learn about on the site.
0: A dot is uh, pretty much the, the scope of my artistic talent. but uh, I I love that idea. And I think that you've been so clear in this interview uh, about the partners that help make a picture book possible, not just publishers, right? A lot of writers are very focused on getting published, getting that agent partner, that publishing partner um, or self-publishing partner, getting into that funnel, getting out there. But I think Something that we really f- tend to forget when we're we're creating is that it really, you do have a co-pilot or several co-pilots, especially in the picture book space, the child, but also the um, the person that brings the book to life, the reader. And in a lot of cases, it's going to be a caretaker, a teacher, and writers are all part of communities where there are schools, where there are classrooms, where there are independent bookstores. What can a writer do to, to make their their community better creatively? Um, what would you recommend if, if they want to reach out volunteering in libraries, in classrooms? What can we provide for teachers to support them in our
1: communities? Especially in public schools, they're very under-resourced and they're designed for help for teachers. For- creative people to come in and share the process um, and showing that it's possible.
0: It's contrary to to fostering creativity. Like you were saying, kids are taught facts and then they regurgitate the facts. And it's a very systematic approach that doesn't, that that's not open-ended. So it's sort of the polar opposite of, of fostering creativity in the
1: classroom. I, I think the Holy Grail in schools is teaching kids to think for themselves. Mm-hmm me, that's what creativity is about. It's looking at a blank page and not being terrified, but being excited and, um, you know, being able to have at least some inkling of what that page could transform into. So if, you know, the best way to teach kids how to be creative is to show them what it looks like. And if you are a writer or illustrator, you have that power to show, uh, especially young people, kids, and also if you want know teachers and grown-ups around you, um, that it's uh, that it's exciting and that a blank page is an exciting thing that it's all about possibilities and uh, you know, ultimately it's teaching people how to be more brave and you know we create people are conjuring things out of nothing and that's you got to be kind of brave to be able to do that uh, so it's like you know, someone pulling you out of the audience and giving you a microphone says, you know, uh, go. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You've got to uh, conjure something out of nothing. And you've got to be brave to do that. So if we can teach our kids that, um, that would be a wonderful thing. So, you know, the world definitely needs more creativity. We are in a very, very tough spot right now. Um, And the only way we're going to move forward is through creative breakthroughs and so people with creative dispositions are going to help lead the way so that we can you know move forward and be in a better place and so i'm sort of reminding everybody to activate their voices and be heard and inspire other people to do the same thing i wrote a book called say something and that it's really a challenge to make sure that every voice is heard, whether it's through words or through art or through dance or through, uh, just showing up that, you know, everybody has to celebrate their voice. And so the people out there who are creative and writing books and, um, illustrating, uh, you know how to do it. So invite other people to do it too we need, we need everybody.
0: Peter H. Reynolds, you are a treasure. Thank you so much for your time and for that bit of inspiration uh, for all writers, illustrators, artists, or just human beings to get out there, boost creativity in your life and also in your community, in the lives of young people. I think that is a mandate that we can all get behind as uh, fans and writers of children's books, especially. Um, and I just, I, I love your work personally and professionally. I love the message that you're spreading. I love what you've done for the community in all of the things that you do. Um, and I just, I really want to thank you for joining us today for your time, your expertise and the inspiration that you bring. So Peter A. Reynolds, my pleasure to host you here. This has been A Good Story Podcast. My name is Mary Cole. Here's to a good story. Thank you so much for joining us for The Good Story Podcast. My name is Mary Cole. The Good Story Podcast is made possible by My team, Abby Pickus, Amy Holland, Amy Wilson, Jen Petro-Roy, Jana Van Roy, Kristen Overman, Paige Polzine, and audio and video wizardry from Steve Reese. You can find us online at goodstorycompany.com, goodstorypodcast.com. I'm at Mary Cole. that's cole with a k.com. And also find your writing partner at critcollective.com. And here is to a good story.